Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons. And this is Shelley Nelson. Welcome to the Innovation and the Digital Enterprise Podcast. Where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. We're very excited to have Karen Fettison on today's episode. Karen has an amazing history of leading the IT teams as a CIO at a number of iconic companies here in the Chicagoland area. Most recently, she served as the Chief Technology Officer at Cooper's Hawk Winery, as they have seen significant growth. Karen was also a finalist for the 2019 Orbi CIO Award, as well as being recognized as one of 2019 Crane's Influential Women Over 50. Both Patrick and I are very excited about having her with us today, so thank you, Karen. Thank you for having me on, Shelley. So speaking of Cooper's Hawk, I'd love to jump right into that and hear about your story there. Yeah, Cooper's Hawk's a really interesting company. It's been around for about 14 years, really rapid growth. I think the original vision might have been a couple of restaurants. Last count, I think they're at 37 restaurants, and they open six plus a year. So when I walked in, the IT organization was very much a, a reactionary group. Wait till something breaks, resolve those issues. They really, that was the total bandwidth of what they had, what they could, what they could do. So they didn't really kind of resolve issues into the future, you know, kind of plan for different types of outages and scenarios. And so they were always in firefighting mode. And so that's pretty typical, I think, with an evolution from an entrepreneurial company to a mid-sized company, but they needed to embrace mid-sized company pretty quickly. And we had a lot of business processes. I always lead with process in technology. So it has to have business purpose and has to have a kind of a business case to make sense so that you can actually prioritize things. And really looking at the way that we were being so reactionary and the opportunity for us to optimize and make some changes that got rid of some of these manual processes, redundant processes, was part of the the early phases of what we did to make improvements for them. Sorry, I hope I didn't wander off. <laughs> no, that's great. And I think the the entrepreneurial environment, I think, is obviously unique in that it's it's very compressed and there's high risk. You clearly have to solve those problems. From your experience, having worked at large organizations that that have similar problems, just not without that feeling like a stopwatch is going on. Are there some things that you were able to do at Cooper's Hawk, that some things that you brought to Cooper's Hawk that you had learned working in maybe more established, more corporate environments? Yeah, it's interesting. People ask me what business vertical I work in. I've worked in a lot of different business verticals, but I consider that an asset because I've seen the way that you know, OCR technology has been integrated into financial services, and you can use it in different ways, but in similar technology solutions in manufacturing and hospitality. And so I really see the ability to to move those pieces across between industries super helpful. A lot of the work that we did at Cooper's Hawk while I was there, everything from data warehouse, data lake, to mobile application was all about addressing these these bigger needs that they had as an organization and preparing for the future. Something Eric on our last episode talked about was 
one of the facets that he thought was an important aspect for leaders. And I think entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs is is having robust experiences. You mentioned the different industries. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's very compelling. I think it's it's great that people see that and do some cross-training and do so. Are there things that you've done? I, I was speaking with somebody today where they were talking about creating a relationship with other companies where they could swap resources. So they've got somebody who's got to a certain level, but they don't have the next level for them yet. So they would trade that person to another company and then they'd get somebody in return that would be a better fit. You know, I think that's a great strategy to create those experiences. I I don't know how that gets executed or if that's possible in many organizations, but are there things that you do with, with your employees to help get them more exposure so that they're learning, so that they're growing and you're developing your leaders? Yeah, I think keeping people current and investing in them and training them is imperative to keeping them. You were kind of talking about a little bit of a a business model where you engage different technology resources, kind of ebb and flow a little bit as, as needed within an organization. And I really see that as something that the millennial, not to genericize it, but the millennial workforce has brought is this much more extensive group of entrepreneurs that offer individual services and you create a very large network of these individuals and you ebb and flow and work together at different times. So I see that within an organization being really similar to what's already building in the workplace. And I think there's something to be learned from it. There's not always the ability to have a particular, you know, business discipline or set of projects at all times. And to be able to ebb and flow with your workforce, I think is a very modern way of looking at how you can optimize what you're doing. I agree. I I find it very interesting. You know, we're in that, you know, like the Nash economic model of like anti-competitive or more collaboratively competitive that even the people that you compete with, you're not really competing with. You're, You're in your own very specific silo, right? I think about Cooper's Hawk and like they created an entire different genre of restaurant, right? Where there's membership and, and connectivity and they've got a store that, you know, it's a little cracker barrel. It's a little high end, right? There's, there's just, you know, you walk in, it's, it's like no place you've been before. And the uh, Southern chicken sandwich is amazing. <laughs> I'm not saying I ate it every time I Everything went. Everything on the menu. <laughs> <laughs> Everything so, on the menu is really addictive, I have to say, including the wine. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know. I get, I see it on my Amex bill for my wife every month. Nice. Nice. It is, it is interesting how they created this segment that really didn't exist, this wine membership that is directly related with the restaurant experience. Their most recent count is 400,000 wine club members which wow. makes them the largest wine club in the United States. That's awesome. And I think they're somewhere around 33rd, 35th winery in production, and they're located right outside of Chicago. So it's a pretty interesting business model. They're in nine states. Next year, I think they'll be upwards of 11. So with that growth comes this really strategic mindset change when it comes to technology of well, I can't just use the things that I used in the past. They were free. I grabbed them off the shelf. They don't have integration. They're really very basic. 
And you have to start looking at them more holistically and saying, okay, how do you group some of these like subjects together so that I can actually get an optimized workforce where we're not necessarily just redoing work time and time again. We're actually creating workflows and document management and ways of doing things more efficiently, which helps you scale as a company as you go through that really rapid growth. So that's a really different mind shift for an organization. And I think because Cooper's Hawk was smaller, we were able to prioritize more work and make more changes in a shorter period of time than maybe I would have at, you know, HSBC is probably a, a bad example because there were it was such a large organization. But even Ace Hardware with several hundred IT employees, it would be very difficult to get things through in a short period of time. Mm-hmm. So with that entrepreneur mindset comes the ability to innovate a little bit quicker. Well, Karen, I can see clearly why they brought you in. And on that note, would love to talk about your Orbi finalist award for 2019. That is such an amazing award. I know that's for tech executives leading innovation and excellence. Would love to hear a little bit more about that and kind of your thoughts on the Orbi. Yeah, you know, it was really interesting. When I got nominated, I was shocked. I was nominated by another female CIO in the Chicago market. And just to have a peer that sees your work and recognizes that as industry leading is an amazing compliment. And then with it comes this this Orbi Award process, which has been one of the most personally fulfilling events and organizations that I have become part of throughout my career. It was a whole series of events, got to meet all of the other Orbi finalists throughout the different business categories. Several of them I knew just through working in the the Chicago area. And so it was very humbling to be put into the same grouping with people that I considered just iconic leaders in Chicago. It was an amazing process. And it's really opened up a lot of doors for me with the Chicago CIO community and with some additional philanthropic activities. I donate a decent amount of my time to different activities It's really helped broaden my capabilities and given me a wider group of CIOs that I can talk with and pick up the phone and gain some of their leadership and experience and business savvy. And it's been a really an amazing event for me this year. That's incredible. Also would love to hear about the Cranes Award for Influential Women. So when I was nominated for the Orbi Awards. The marketing firm for Cooper's Hawk picked it up and they contacted me and said, hey, listen, Cranes has this additional recognition that we wanted to submit you for. And here I had been working on kind of essays and things like that for the Orbeez. And I provided them with a collection of my my write-ups for the, the Orbi Awards. And two weeks later, I got published as being one of the most influential women in Chicago in technology. And I was just beyond humbled. I love what I do. And being part of these different organizations and getting paid to do something that you love, that you're really passionate about, it gives me an absolute skip in my step every day when I solve a problem, when I come up with cost savings, when I help an organization 
to achieve like that next level of capability or innovating in some way, a new location, a new type of technology that's being rolled out. It is an absolute privilege to be able to do that and to be able to do it in a, a peer group of just amazing people in Chicago. That's really awesome. And I, I think from, and I you know, Karen, I've only recently met you, but I can tell you're a very decisive person, very direct in your communication. And leaders obviously have to seek conflict, right? What I, I find interesting is, you know, you, you talk about the fast environment, the entrepreneurial environment, where there's really not a lot of time to, you know, if, if you've never been in an organization, and the fastest growing organization I've ever been in grew at like 40% year over year for like three years. Mm-hmm. And what you did at Cooper's Hawk is significantly higher than that. So I have an I have a vague concept of what that may have felt like. I don't think a lot of people have had that experience of, you know, things are moving so fast. You, you know, to move from that that problem focus to solution focus to start being strategic, while at the same time it's not just putting out fires; it's putting out fires that are keep multiplying, right? It's not one fire, there's 12 fires, right? right? And now you've got all of this instability and at the same point in time, you still got to drive through it. So I, I've got kind of two parts to this question. The first part is, you know, as you're moving through that, moving from problem focused to solution focused, how do you engage your team? Do you focus on specific people? What are some of the things that you did to be able to do that? Because you don't, you could start out with a quarterly plan or an annual plan, but you, you know that's not true, right? Right. 40 minutes after you leave that meeting, you know things are going to change. That's some pretty unstable ground. Yeah. So when it comes to solving problems, I actually think my team and a lot of the staff within the organization, whether it's within corporate or restaurant or retail location, a lot of times they know what these problems are and they often have innovative ways of solving these problems. So I love to put together contests and submission boxes. When I was at Cooper's Hawk, we were taking in submissions for innovation and ranking them kind of against each other and coming up with some proof of concepts to make some improvements for member relationships that were happening or for, you know, kind of enhancing the existing relationship that you have with your members like the mobile app. And that was really our, our key focus was, you know, how do you come up with what those ideas are? And so empowering everybody in the team, you know, I spend a lot of time with my teams, one-on-one with people. I'm not very hierarchical at all. I allow hierarchy to exist for kind of work assignments and things like that. But when it comes to relationships and having direct conversations, I don't like to play the telephone game. So being able to sit with somebody and have coffee and then debrief their manager, hey, by the way, we met, this is something that I've asked them to consider and think about and seek out training, and we just keep that communication going. But oftentimes, I can't get close enough to something to come up with a solution. So relying on people who are subject matter experts and who have those ideas is imperative, I think, to moving that innovation in the right direction and coming up with sound solutions That'll solve not just the problem, but it'll solve really more the process. I think oftentimes, as especially technologists, we think, you know, when we get caught in situations and stressful situations, we put our heads down and, and we just go to work. And it, it sounds like 
the thing that you did to make sure that you stayed successful was getting the most out of the team that you've got by directly interacting? Yeah, for sure. And part of anytime you go into an an organization new, part of it is assessing that team as well. What expertise do you have? What expertise do you need? Where could you train somebody to have expertise that you have a gap for? And where do you really need outside help, whether that outside help ends up being a full-time employee or maybe a vendor relationship where you're going to continue to have a relationship with them long-term because that expertise is so critical and needs to stay incredibly current. So I think kind of looking at all of those aspects to it is what helps you build that, that foundation of working with your teams and best understanding what they can actually bring to the table. Nice. And Karen, I know you're so great at building relationships and you've got so much, you know, trust and integrity. And when you don't have those reports close to you, for example, you've managed global teams, how do you operate in that respect? And I I know a handful of years ago, you actually lived in China. So you, you've got the global experience curious if that maybe changed the way you managed global teams as well. Yeah, China was really very interesting and an amazing experience. If anybody listening to this has ever wondered whether or not they should uproot their family and move to China for a few years, my vote would be yes, and my family's vote would be yes as well. So I think getting different experiences is incredibly eye-opening. I remember my very first meeting in China I think there were maybe six attendees, but there was probably 24 people in the room. And so I introduced myself to everybody and then found out I'd made my first faux pas. I was supposed to introduce myself to the people that were at the table, not the people who were kind of sitting around the perimeter of the room that were just there to observe the meeting. I'd never come across anything quite like it before. And so really understanding how environments work, but then helping in an environment like that that's very structured how you can bring in collaboration and get a little bit more than what you would if you were working on something in isolation. You know, mind trust, having a variety of people around you that have different experiences, have different approaches, gets you such a better product when you are creating and developing than if everybody kind of thinks the same. And I think it's really important to keep your mind open and very purposefully bring in people with different backgrounds and different expertise to round out a team and the experience. That makes me think of the book, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Oh, I love that book. Isn't it great? I I, Mm -hmm. honestly, I I just finished it a, a couple of weeks ago. And it makes me think about like, one of the concepts that he talks about in the book is, you know, a wartime CEO versus a, a peacetime CEO. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, is there something that you do different? Is there, you know, he talks about like, a, you know, when you're, you're in a peacetime CEO role, you can focus on, you know, being a little bit more of a generous leader. You can take more time. When it's a wartime CEO, it's more one mistake and you're fired, right? Over-exaggeration on, on things because you don't have time for it. And it's not about thinking downfield. It's about what are we doing this quarter? You know, with the diverse experience that you've had, you know, do you modulate between those two types of personas as well? You know, I am very familiar with the wartime CEO and CIO kind of mentality and have lived through it. 
many years in my career. I would say that was probably really IBM, Monsanto, HSBC. Wartime every day was kind of war to some extent, fighting for market share, fighting for you know that next country that you were opening in. And so it kind of always had that very gruff veneer to it. And I'm one of those people who always steps back and looks at a situation maybe a little bit more holistically. And I would watch the churn and the burn of people and thinking to myself, wow, that costs a lot. That costs a lot from knowledge management, from turnover, from absentee time of not having somebody in that seat to, you know, just the the cost of recruitment. I looked at all of those things and thought, there's got to be a different way to do this. And I had the experience of working in kind of more of what you called a peacetime, because I think that every day is, although there's aspects of it that are war and very important to, you know, the mission critical aspects of the business and company that you're running, you need to have that peace about you in order to make sound decisions. So you can never act as though you are in wartime. You may be in wartime, but the veneer and the way that you approach things is actually more from a peacetime perspective. So in IT, that means planning for situations in the future and mitigating that risk and making sure that there's minimal opportunities for some of those things that happen and to always be mindful of you know what is the ultimate goal of the business How can I make sure that the critical systems are up and running? There are so many aspects of that that feed into that peacetime. But if your teams are at peace and they're not on the the end of this whip, I feel like they will work harder for you, work longer for you, stay with you, come back to you again. I have a lot of individuals that have worked for me over my career that will ping me every once in a while and be like, hey, you know, where are you at? By the way, this is what I'm currently doing. Love to cross paths with you again. That's the most ultimate compliment. And when those two things align, it can be fabulous. But to know that there's those resources out there that want to work with you, that you want to work with them, that you've really kind of built this environment, that peacetime mentality, I think is imperative for people to know, I will entrust in you as a leader, but I also know that I'm not going to be on an over-exaggerated roller coaster in order to, you know, kind of be in this role. I, I, I agree with you, and I found it a little, I don't know, maybe I don't understand the Silicon Valley culture as well as I did, because it did seem like some of the things he said he was doing or w- was open to doing seemed beyond the pale of, you know, professionally appropriate. I, you know, even like the concept of a wartime CEO where it's like you're not really at war, though. Right. It doesn't have that gravity. It's still business. So I, I, I'm with you that the idea that, yes, there's up tempo, right? But the concept of like, we're going to go out and put on a different persona or become another person. I struggled with that when I was reading the book around that concept that, okay, so we're justifying, you know, some of these bad behaviors or because it seemed some of the things that he was doing was, you know, pretty aggressive. And I come from an Irish Catholic family with a dad who was a Navy pilot. So if it's aggressive for me, I'm pretty sure it's aggressive for most people in modern America. But I appreciate you saying that. And I think it's an important thing. How do you stay calm? What are some of the things that you do to, to, to remain calm when it's not easy to do? 
you know, it's really interesting. Years ago, I had a major problem with this, not just not staying calm, but really making sure that that everything about me was, in fact, calm as opposed to just maybe on the outside appearing calm. And I ended up taking up meditation. I had a doctor was like, hey, Karen, I really think you'd benefit from meditation. And the first time I sat down to do meditation, I stopped at a park and I tried to meditate for 20 seconds. And I could not meditate for 20 seconds without allowing other thoughts to come into my mind. And I was like, oh my God, mm. I'm going to fail miserably at this. <laughs> and I and I started a meditation practice of literally going and doing that exact same thing. And 20 seconds turned into 30, turned into a minute. I meditate regularly. And I also do a lot of breathing exercises. The people that work around me in the office, they know this about me because they'll come across it. I'll have, you know, times where I stand up and I'm doing stretches or exercising or taking a walk or doing mindful meditation, things like that. They're not long, extensive things. They might be three minutes here, four minutes here, but I do those things and I encourage other people to do those as well. Just when I was working at Cooper's Hawk, I had two conversations with people on my team who were like, oh my God, you meditate? Okay, teach me how to meditate. And it was something that they themselves had thought about, didn't really know how to get started. There's some great apps out there that can kind of help you through those things. But that was kind of the first place that I started was with meditation. I also am able to, in the midst of kind of chaos and things like that, just say, okay, hey, stop. Let's get on the same page. Let's talk about what we know. Let's talk about what we don't know. And I've always kind of had that that voice of reason. I deal better with a stressful situation if I can organize it into bits and bytes of information that make a lot of sense to me. And then make sure that everybody's kind of in in the loop on on where everything's at with, you know, a chaotic situation. I also think that sleep and exercise are very important to your life. If I'm not going to get a workout class in, then I'm going to do at least a mile and a half of walking a day. So I really try to put forward and put these things into my life. When I didn't focus on this, you know, my health suffered, my stress level suffered, and focusing on these things has really helped me in all areas of my life. I went to the Human Performance Institute, which is a Johnson & Johnson class, basically. I went last year and it's about finding the right balance, physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual in you. And if any of those areas are out of whack, it makes it harder for another area to stay in balance. And so it was all about coming up with what is your mission statement? Who do you want to be as a person? And then how do I, how does this play out for me spiritually, physically, emotionally, mentally, and kind of pulling all of that together. It was a really interesting process and has become something that I reiterate regularly for myself. I rewrite my mission statement once a month and I look at the things that I'm actually doing. How am I contributing to my plans, to my mission? How am I personally, how am I professionally? And go through that process. Personal mission statement. Mm Mm-hmm. Got to know what that is. I think that that sounds like a little secret gem there that we got to pull out. <laughs> so the personal mission statement is about 
pulling together all of those aspects about yourself that are incredibly important. So for example, I have six qualities that I aspire to include in myself every single day. And knowing whether or not I was kind or considerate, or I did something that was for my spiritual self, just being able to keep track and know that I'm contributing to that long-term mission personally and professionally is how I stay on track in building myself for the future. I think it's really important to think about the next generation of IT professionals and to lead them and develop them and help them with, you know, some of these unusual things that you've learned through time, like meditation or about coming up with a great way to do work-life balance. Shelly probably knows this about me, but I had a horrible work-life balance for years. I didn't marry until I was 35. I had my son when I was 40. And so I never had work-life balance until, you know, our family expanded and really needed to have a different perspective. It's one of the reasons that I ended up changing the industries that I work in, working with maybe a little bit smaller companies, so I'm not on the road all the time internationally. But I think it's about helping the next generation understand the decisions that they make for themselves professionally. It's the right thing for every single person to have a game plan of what they want to be and how they want to be represented and then make decisions that support that. Karen, I'm curious because obviously technology is is always changing, but curious when you think back to your earlier career years, what do you think was the biggest challenge for IT professionals versus what that outlook is today for the next generation? That's such a loaded question because I, I tell how old I am by some of the things that I'll say. <laughs> so in those in those early days, the concept that we were going to do business over the internet was absolutely shocking to people. You know, internet had been more educational, research-based. There were a lot of value-added networks that were doing private internet, if you will. And so, you know, just this whole concept of we're going to actually connect everything, I think was really hard for people to get their minds around Fortunately, there was this Y2K thing that came in and was incredibly distracting. And I think, you know, anybody kind of survived through the Y2K era. We learned a lot about planning for the future, not over-exaggerating concerns with projects. That was a, a very interesting time. So I think the leaps of technology back to when I originally started, it felt very fast. Just in the, you know, probably first 10 years that I worked in business, we went from not using the internet to using the internet for everything. Now, the speed is so much more significant. It is happening at a rate that I cannot even quantify. (laughs) And what I find is that I have to be very flexible to allowing this just constant barrage of technology and innovation that is in front of me, I can't ignore it. And it's, there's so much of it, it's sometimes easier to ignore. But you can't ignore it because you really need to kind of keep abreast of how fast the marketplace is changing 
and how you could actually bring some of that technology into your organization in a way that maybe wasn't necessarily planned for or wasn't a priority that was significant, but had a really good significant lift to it. Shadow IT for years was listed as kind of, you know, this big, bad subject and, you know, anybody who was committing shadow IT shouldn't be allowed to within organizations. I grew up in technology that, you know, really felt that way very strongly. And I had somebody on LinkedIn who presented a different point of view to me years ago about treating shadow IT like an innovation pipeline where, you know, these people are kind of working on behalf of IT with not really much of a budget. And we're going to see how far they can kind of go with some things. And I loved that glass half full approach to just technology and innovation and how organizations ebb and flow with each other in looking at that shadow IT as a pipeline, a pipeline for innovation that you could use to create proof of concepts and continue to change and evolve your organization. Obviously, I I think that's a fantastic opinion since I used to be shadow IT. (laughs) (laughs) I love shadow IT now. I just try to find out that it's happening. And I think that's the really important part of it is knowing that it happens and recognizing it and understanding why marketing's my favorite group that always ends up with lots of shadow IT, understanding what the business issue is that's causing them to go that direction and seeing whether or not you know, can I, can I help? Can I help you find a good service? Can I make sure that the service that you have is actually really sound and, you know, you're not going to have to lift this up and rip it out in a year, you know, those types of things. And so I think partnering with teams that feel like they can't get their technical issues resolved without going out and doing something on their own, I think partnering with them is the most important thing that you can do. Again, I I go back to that whole non-competitive space of, you know, I'm a vendor of sorts. So when I work with my clients, you know, I expect for them to be looking at their customers as well as as part of the same ecosphere of the more that they interact with their their customers, the the sooner they're able to build the products that they want, which then that just creates a value stream for everybody of like, let's just get rid of this idea of like, for me to win, you must lose. And how is it that everybody, you know, there's a confluence of like, everybody's going to win. How do we create more value for everybody? You know, I having been internal IT as well, I remember loathing the shadow IT guys who got the plum projects and they bring in the, you know, insert consulting name company here. <laughs> I think we all know, well, especially back in the late nineties, we know who that was. So, uh-huh. But it was, you know, they'd show up and they'd get the the great projects and I, here I am doing maintenance and, and repair stuff. And it's like, wait, I, am I not your employee? And, and I think that's part of the challenge. I was speaking with somebody just the other day where they had outsourced the development of their core application, which I would never encourage. I don't think that's a, that's a good decision because at some point you're going to return that organ back to the body. And, and I just think the rejection potential there is just too high. So the collaboration I love that analogy. Well, it, it, but isn't that it though? I mean, like you think about it, like yeah. you, you know, people have to maintain and support it and love it after it's returned. They have to agree with those decisions, right? No, I was just going to say, you know, I don't like IT organizations that are set up like that. I want the work done 
right, as a leader, but I also want my people developed. I want them to raise their hand and go, this is totally rote. This is not interesting. You know, there's no way I could do this for another year type of thing. I love to know that somebody has bandwidth or has an interest in doing something different. I like to automate, you know, repetitive things all day long. Let's get to the real core of the work that needs to be done as opposed to kind of keeping ourselves with busy with some of these non-value-added activities. So I think really fundamentally understanding your team, understanding what their personal interests are, mapping that to the objectives and the work that has to be done, I think it gives you a, a really strong, solidified team. People understand what's in it for them. They understand what they're giving in exchange. And it really helps to build the team and make the team attractive. One of my responsibilities as a CIO is to manage my brand and to make sure that my technology teams are attractive so that when I am recruiting for a position, I get the best that I can get, knowing that a lot of them would like to come and work for me or work with my team or we have a good reputation. And those are some of the things that they're actually seeking. Karen, it's obvious from this conversation why why you were nominated for all these awards. Obviously, you're a tremendous leader, understanding how to stay in a strategic position, which when we started, that, IT was not a strategic position, right? It was a cost-cutting, it was cost-control. It wasn't something you invested in. It was something you tried to drive the price out of or drive the cost down on. And clearly, you've made that transition, and probably because of who you've always been, and creating that strategic focus of that part of the business, I think is one of the reasons why we started this podcast is to to share that perspective of like, we all need to be focused more strategically on adding value to the people that we serve through customers or partners or whatever, and removing some of those rote, not value adding, right? So how do you get hands on the tools, doing things, you know, adding features, adding things that people want instead of doing backups? Right, right. Right. I just, just the concept of like, it's somebody's job to do backups, right? Where it's like, and it used to be mine when I was at Motorola. So I, I, I hated that job. I, I think with the proliferation of software as a service and just, you know, the as of service concepts come across, you really end up with technology vendor partners that are an extension of your team, which is a very different than how IT was, you know, 10, 15 years ago, where you had people on your staff and they, you know, built servers and they managed the operating systems and they did all these things where now you don't actually have to have that expertise in-house. I mean, if I work for a, a restaurant, my expertise is not server optimization. My expertise is getting members to have wine club memberships and to come into the restaurant several times a month. And so understanding what you should and shouldn't be the master of helps you determine where I need vendor partners. And it just continues to change and morph the way that that you did business. So you're not going to be doing backups anymore. You're going to be outsourcing your backups to a third party that really specializes in those things. And then your team, as you kind of peel back that onion and take all of those really fundamental support aspects, now you take that development, which I agree with you, my core systems, I'm not going to outsource my development. 
I want my knowledge inside my company. I want that expertise. I want to be able to be dynamic with it. Those are the right places where you would do some, you know, agile development and to really manage your work in a way that helps with productivity and brings new functionality and and technology to the marketplace, you know, kind of with regular software releases. I strip it down to this. Are you spending money on the strategic parts of the business? And then I I put those two, the strategic versus the operational. Mm -hmm. And not to say that you don't need operational because that's how you make money, right? Yeah. But I think the the mistakes we've seen here in in the greater Chicagoland area as this new world is, is upon us and some organizations are not adapting to it fast enough, there's too much status quo and it's not enough focus on being in a strategic position and elevation. I love that term you used before, you know, the elevation of everyone in the organization to be closer to the strategic portion of the business. And I use terms like thrust versus drag in that scenario of like, Hmm. if you can get more people in the organization on the thrust side, that strategic forward moving, you know, they're pulling things off of their manager's plate and they're pulling the managers, pulling things off of the director's plate and the director's pulling things off of, you know, the VP's plate that leads all the way up to the CEO. So the CEO is out there being more strategic, reaching out to new opportunities, considering new things, spending more time on building and growing, not just operating the business. What I find interesting is when even people, very smart people that I talk to about, yes, of course, this is what we want to do. We want to elevate it. And then they say, oh yeah, but the IT director really loves their servers and they really love doing backups and but they don't get that they they need to be strategic. And then the interesting part is even people further up, when you have that conversation, like, yeah, but then what am I going to do with my time? And it's like, you are aware of what that answer is, but yet there's something hardwired in us as humans about that change that I think causes fear. And I'm not judging it on an individual basis. I think it's something that's inherent to us. Change is a little scary it's necessary, but I think there's something in that shift from from that dragged thrust of like, okay, so I got really good at this, and I don't know what that means, and I don't know. Is that what are your thoughts about that? Yeah, it's interesting. I I, I think there's some stereotypes that come along with that. So I worked for a company up in Wisconsin doing consulting for them, and one of the IT guys came to me, and he was like, "What am I going to do?" I said, what are you going to do about what? And he goes, well, the server rack, there's only two things left in it. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and he goes, I don't know. Well, Go meet a customer. No, he goes, he goes, he goes, well, for so long, he's like, people are going to start questioning what I do. Now, mind you, he had started moving things to cloud hosted services and we'd increased the number of SaaS solutions. And for some reason, he had equated through his career his value with how many blinking lights there were in the server rack. And I said, I want you to know that if you end up with nothing in that server rack, that does not change, you know, your role. And he goes, I think people are going to start wondering what we do. And so it was really interesting when you talk about change and resistance and shifts and things that have to happen. Those are some impressions that we've had for many years of, you know, Oh, I put my stuff in a data center. I have data center capabilities. Well, no, you not, you don't anymore. And I, you know, have information security. Well, actually, I have a third party that does that for me. So that that whole mindset of how that's evolving is is really morphing and changing 
technology. I think it's it's really a lot of fun to see it, and it's happening very, very fast. Couldn't agree more. I think we could have this conversation for about another four hours if given a chance. <laughs> Because I'd really like to get into the whole legacy because I think there's a history there and things that need to be unlearned around, you know, the year 2008 to 2010 and just Gartner. We're just going to throw Gartner under the bus. (laughs) (laughs) I don't don't know anybody who works at Gartner, so, you know, be mad at me. I'm fine. All right. So to wrap, though, on behalf of Shelly, I really would like to thank you, Karen, for taking the time to get on a call with us and, and to do this episode with us. It's an amazing background. I love that you were able to share so much about what you've done. And we also wanted to thank our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us. And if you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32. 